0: Section ten of Take It From Dad by George G. Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section ten letters of May ten and May twenty six. Lynn, Mass. May tenth, nineteen something. Dear Ted, if I'd had time before I left Exeter last week you and I would have had a heart-to-heart talk about some of those freak books and magazines I found strewn all over your room. Equalization of the masses, the workers' share, and the exploitation of the people, are heavy-sounding titles, and the contents, I should judge from my hurried examination, would be about as easy to digest as a bake-shop plum-pudding. Your study table also seemed to be carrying more than its share of long-haired magazines, and although I read some of their foolishness just to see how foolish they really were, I was afraid all the time I was looking at them someone would come in and catch me. Now I've read a considerable number of fool articles in my life, but that one on Soviet Government for the United States wins in a walk." how anybody outside of Danvers could believe in such nonsense is beyond me, especially after what has happened in Russia, but as old Jeg Bigelow used to say, there ain't nothing so foolish but some critter will believe it, and Jed was right. When you told me a few weeks ago you had joined the radical club, I thought it was just a kid fad you'd taken up to have a little something extra to do but I didn't imagine you'd started in to support all the crack-brained long-haired, wild-eyed writers who are making a living out of the good nature of this country. Radicalism is mighty dangerous business, Ted, about as safe as smoking cigarettes in a patent leather factory, and if I really thought you believed you were in sympathy with all that nonsense, I'd whale you good. The trouble with you is, you're just beginning to think a little for yourself now thinking for yourself is fine but until you begin to direct your thoughts in the right direction you're a good deal like the cannon uncle abija invented during the spanish war it was a first-rate gun when he could control it but it was as likely to kill the people behind it as those at whom it was aimed so uncle abija gave it up as a bad job after it had blown off most of his whiskers and a couple of fingers these radical galoots who want to tip everything in the country upside down from the constitution to the movies get under my hide and if i had my way i'd make every one of them work at least eight hours a day and bathe oftener than every thirty-first of february it makes me mad clear through to see these snakes who leave their own countries because the sheriff wants em busy before the immigration authorities can disinfect em plotting to overthrow the government who gives them the only chance they ever had in a republic all men are born equal but that's all it's nonsense to suppose that a good-for-nothing loafer who makes his living by stirring up hatred against law and order is the equal of a decent god-fearing hard-working citizen who minds his own business pays taxes and tries to raise a family of straight americans and if anyone tries to tell me two such men are equal I'll let him know mighty quick I think he's either a liar or a blamed fool. A lot of children cut open their dolls to see what's inside, and a lot of folks, who ought to know better, are monkeying around with this radicalism business to see what's in it. I can tell you what's in it nothing, and working to promote nothing is a fool's job. Now you may think I'm too conservative and i believe that when thomas jefferson and company wrote the constitution of the united states they did a pretty fair job and until some one can improve on it which hasn't been done yet i'm backing up the old constitution with every bit of my strength whenever i hear of any becoming interested in radicalism it always reminds me of an old fellow by the name of charlie gab who lived in epping now gab was rightly named for he used to hang around sol whittaker's store filling the place with hot air until sol nailed chicken wire over the top of his cracker barrels gab was against everything as it was nothing was right work included i guess for he was never known to do any and was supported by a long-suffering wife who used to earn their living by going out working by the day he was agin the government and agin all law and claimed all wealth should be divided equally among the people there wasn't anything he couldn't improve on but as he was harmless in spite of all his talk no one paid any serious attention to him gab went on talking for a number of years without exciting any of the epping folks overmuch and then the woollen mill was built and a lot of poles came to town to work in it they were hard-working saving sort of people but as they had only just come over from Poland, where I imagine they had a pretty rough time with the Germans on one side and the Russians on the other, both trying to rob them of everything they had, they were down on all governments on general principles, and it wasn't long before old Gab had made a big impression on them. I don't know as they could be blamed, for Gab could talk louder and longer and faster than anyone else I ever heard and i'll admit that some of the stuff he had to offer sounded pretty well until one sat down and started to figure out what it really meant those poles couldn't have understood much gab said but it sort of flattered them to have an american take any notice of them so in a short time gab became their leader and used to gather them all together twice a week on the common and give them a harangue that would make your hair curl then epping got the surprise of its life for one day the poles quit the woollen mill in a body and under old gab's leadership hiked over to a deserted village five miles back in the hills where they lived a community life sharing everything alike this was a splendid arrangement for gab for never having had anything when it came time to divide up what there was gab got a little something from each family and owning nothing himself he didn't have anything to give away. Then too, as chief of the tribe, he was allotted the best house, and was altogether much better off than he had ever been in his life. For a time the village prospered, for the Poles were workers, and weren't afraid to put in a little overtime when their farms needed it, and old Gab, whenever he drove over to Epping, used to crow over the success of his socialist experiment now gab had a brother who lived at bristol centre who was a regular fellow and couldn't see the epping member of his family with a telescope the bristol centre gab had worked hard all his life and owned one of the largest hog ranches in new england one day this brother who was a bachelor died and charlie suddenly found himself the owner of a farm and about two thousand hogs Now if Charlie Gab really believed what he'd been preaching for years, he'd have divided up his farm, and two thousand hogs among the Poles, who'd been more or less supporting him. But he did nothing of the kind. He left his socialistic friends and moved over to Bristol Centre, taking possession of his brother's farm, hogs and all. The Poles heard of their leader's good fortune, and waited patiently for him to divide. Nothing doing finally a committee went over and asked old gab when the grand division of pigs was to take place and he chased them off his farm with a pitchfork a week later in the middle of the night epping was awakened by the greatest yelling and squeaking and grunting that was ever heard in one place in the history of the world the poles had raided old gab's hog farm and were driving through epping what they considered their share of his property Old Gab was trailing along behind, cursing and howling for the sheriff, who, when he heard what had happened, couldn't be found, although I remember seeing him hanging out his window in his nightshirt, laughing so hard I thought he'd bust. Old Gab started about a hundred lawsuits, but everyone sympathized with the polls, and as one pig looks about as much like another as two peas do, Gab couldn't swear to his property, so he lost every case. From the time of the great pig raid until he died, Gab was the staunchest conservative in the country, and if anyone mentioned socialism to him, he nearly had a fit. Now, Ted, you are going to cut out this radical business pronto, too sweet, and at once, and if I don't hear from you within a week that you have resigned from that radical club and severed diplomatic relations with that sort of nonsense, you'll leave Exeter so quick you won't know what hit you for as long as i'm head of the sewell tribe no member of my family is going to do anything that can in any manner be regarded as harmful to the country that our grandfathers fought for from bunker hill to gettysburg i know that it is curiosity that has interested you in radicalism well try to realize that in these trying days when the whole future of the world is at stake every american no matter how young has as stern a duty to perform in upholding law and order as ever our continentals had at valley forge organize an american club get together the biggest boys you can and start a club to teach the young foreigners who work in the mills and factories that america gives a square deal to all show these young fellows through teaching them our american sports that clean playing and good sportsmanship are two of the biggest things in life. Help teach them to build up, not tear down. You Exeter boys are only boys, and yet as Americans there is nothing you cannot accomplish, and God knows that to help in every possible way the newcomers among us, to understand our American ideals, is as great a privilege as was given to the boys who went over there, that liberty might not perish from the earth make me proud of you my boy not ashamed make me feel that when i take down the old family bible and turn to its fly-leaf where the history of our family has been written for generations that in time your name will be worthy of a place beside those of our men who did their part in making the united states the greatest nation the world has ever known play up ted you're one of the country's pinch hitters and i know you can be depended upon to deliver your affectionate father william soar lynn mass may twenty sixth nineteen something dear ted you can't imagine how proud i am of this new american club of yours and the school is too if the letters i received from the principal and most of the professors are good indications of what they feel the boston papers have taken it up and as you have probably seen andover is forming an american club for the young foreigners in the lawrence mills and yesterday when i met the governor he asked to be introduced to you when he speaks in lynn next week this sort of work is so much more worth while than the radical business i know you can't help feeling you're a better american for having undertaken it and you may be sure that when you are older you'll get a heap of satisfaction out of the thought that there are a lot of good Americans who might have grown up to be troublemakers if you and your friends hadn't helped to steer them into good citizenship. If I were you, I'd accept the principal's offer for the use of the vacant room in the administration building, fitted up as a reading-room with a lot of the best magazines, histories of the United States, and lives of famous Americans for the young foreigners who can read English and get some of the instructors to help teach the ones who can't. Thursday I'll send you a check for $200, which I've raised among a few friends. This will help buy the books, so in the fall, when school reopens, you'll be ready to start things with a rush. As to where you are going to college when you finish school, I wouldn't worry about that now, if I were you. Finish school first, by then you'll probably know where you want to go. I've always found it a pretty good rule to follow, never to worry about another job, until I've finished the one I'm working on. There are lots of people who make themselves sick, worrying about things that never happen, when they might as well save their doctor's bills and enjoy life. Personally, I think it doesn't make much difference where you go, as long as you go to college to do a fair amount of work, and not just to play football and have a good time. There are a lot of advantages in going to one of the big universities, where you can study anything from Egyptian hairdressing in the fourth century BC, to the vibrations caused by an airplane flying at 100 miles an hour, and where you have the advantage of wonderful libraries, museums, and laboratories to help you in your work. Then again, the small college, with its solid academic course, based principally on honest-to-goodness horse sense, is a pretty good place. For not having fifty-seven varieties of courses, it's apt to rub thoroughly into a boy's hide what it does have to offer. When the time comes for you to go to college, I'm not going to interfere. I am going to let you make your own choice. But as that time is nearly two years away, I'd do a little more thinking about how you are going to pass your final exams this year, than worrying about what college you are going to enter a year from next fall you remind me of a clerk by the name of charlie harris i once had in the factory charlie was a good hard-working boy came to me right from high school and as he didn't seem to have a grudge against the hands of the clock because they moved slowly and was always willing to do a little more than his share of the work i became interested in him charlie had one queer trick though he was never satisfied with finishing the job he had on hand but was forever worrying about the next bit of work he might have to do not worrying mind you because he had the next job coming to him as i said before charlie wasn't afraid of work but he was always afraid something was going to queer the future job before he could get to it and get it finished one winter when you were a little chap my shipper got the grip and was out for three months I wished his job on Charlie, and Charlie made good, although you never would have thought so from the length of his face. Our shipments were sent out on time, well packed, and properly routed. But Charlie was as doleful as a rejected suitor at a pretty girl's wedding. There wasn't a day he didn't come in and spill gloom all over my office, prophesying that soon everything would go wrong. Nothing happened, though, so I used to laugh at him, and tell him to forget it. Early in February I was due to make a big shipment of shoes to a jobber's warehouse on or before March 1st. Everything had gone smoothly. I'd had no labour troubles, had bought my stock right, and stood to make a nice juicy profit, for on the first day of February all the shoes were in cases in the shipping room, ready to start on their journey to Chicago. On the night of the 2nd it started to snow for three days it came down in perfect clouds burying lynn four feet deep for three days traffic was completely stalled for although the snow was wet and sticky when the storm started along in the afternoon of the second day it turned cold with the result that the whole mass turned into ice and made it impossible to clear the streets still i wasn't worried any for Jim Devlin, my old truckman, I knew, would be among the first to do business as soon as it was possible to get through the streets, and I still had several days' leeway before my shoes must start for Chicago. On the morning of the fifth day, when pungs were beginning to get around, Charlie gloomed into my office, and informed me that Devlin hadn't a single team on runners, having the previous fall traded all of his pungs for drays, Devlin had been so sure he could hire enough pungs to take care of our big shipment, he hadn't even told us the fix he was in, until, having tried every teamster and livery stable within miles of Lynn, he found he couldn't get a single one. Everybody wanted pungs, and the truckmen who owned any were rushing theirs night and day to take care of their regular customers. I tried to borrow from everyone I knew, with no luck for all the shoe manufacturers had use for every pung they could get their hands on to get their own shoes to the freight yards. Finally, I gave up in disgust, and sat down to figure out my loss, when I happened to glance out the window of my office that looks out on the alley that leads to our shipping-room door. There were about three hundred kids lined up there, each one with a sled, and I wondered what in the world they were up to, when one staggered around the corner of our building dragging a sled after him on which was perched a shoe-case with the princess shoe stenciled in red letters across the top i let out a whoop and dove for the shipping-room where i found charlie and his crew as busy as ants tying cases of shoes onto the kid's sleds as fast as the boys backed them up to the shipping-room door before night every case of shoes had been delivered to the freight-yards, and Charlie's pay had been increased ten dollars a week, but the next morning, when I reached the factory, I found him almost weeping, because he was afraid that when the snow melted, it would flood our shipping-room, which in those days was level with the street. For five years after that, I used Charlie as a sort of pinch-hitter around the factory, giving him all sorts of work, but never letting him know what his next job was to be and as he couldn't worry about what was coming he more than made good ted any real college is a good college it's all up to you for so far as i know there's nothing to prevent you from learning a lot in any one of them the thing for you to do for the next two years is to study hard at exeter Then, when it comes time to take your exams, you needn't be afraid about being able to get into any college you choose. I'll be in Exeter Saturday to have a look at your American club, and at his special request, I'm bringing the Governor's private secretary with me. So long, old boy. Your affectionate father, William Sol. End of section 10